If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you will find one under the chair in front of you. You will find our text on page 983 this morning, page 983. Colossians chapter 1. What kind of answer would you give if someone asked you the question, how do you grow a church? How do you grow a church? The reality is that question has been answered in various ways uh, over the years, and especially in recent decades, the answers have gotten more and more diverse. In fact, entire books have been written answering that question, how to grow a church. For example, some have suggested that you begin by looking at the, the city and the culture around you. Look at the lost people you're trying to reach. Figure out what are, what are they like? What do they like? What do they not like? What are the things that interest them? What are the things they aspire to? What do they want out of life? And once you determine all those things, you then begin to look inward and begin changing how you look, how you sing, what you do, uh, both individually and in this context, uh, in order to most look like those around you, to draw them in so that they will hear the message that you want to present about Christ. Others say, look, culture is tired of traditional churches altogether. So go completely untraditional in what you do. Do the basic opposite of everything a traditional church has always done. Forget about precise doctrinal statements in favor of questioning everything. Just throw out church history, throw out every, uh, every creed, and just open the Bible and judge for yourself what the text says. Furthermore, don't ever do this with a person doing what I'm doing now, standing behind a pulpit and preaching. No, just gather together uh, 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 as one voice and just have someone moderate the discussion as together, as community, we work out the meaning of the text. And don't ever think about meaning in any kind of a formal church building. No, find some other public space that is considered cool and unthreatening by the world around you. A movie theater or a coffee shop, maybe even a bar, and have your gatherings there. So others emphasize the need to do everything big and entertaining, believing that what is most fundamentally needed is to make people enjoy and want to come to church. So you keep what things would be familiar to people, what they would expect as they come to church. You keep a preacher, you keep a church building, and yet you make it easy for them to come. You have everyone dressed casual from those in the pew to those in the pulpits. And you may even put on big productions of music that include lots of drama and attention-grabbing activities, all of which are designed to keep people there, to keep people interested, to keep people entertained as you seek to tell them about God. Now, all of those examples are frankly oversimplified, but they all represent real approaches found in real churches. And you can see how different, fundamentally, all of these approaches are towards trying to grow the church. Well, as 
at least as in my own life as a pastor, this question is always rattling around in the back of my mind. How can we more effectively grow as a church? But it's a question that myself and Joe and Richard have all been considering over the past several months. We have been looking to the scriptures. We have been talking. We have been praying. We have been thinking. And in the midst of all different kinds of books that have fallen into our uh, hands and have passed through our eyes, talking about this method and that thing, and, and do this to grow the church, one, one was uh, in many ways a godsend to us that has proved to be one of the most helpful books I have ever read on the church. The book is called The Trellis and the Vine, and the reason why this book has been most helpful is not because it's based on the latest demographic studies or the latest market research. It isn't trying to reinvent the wheel or look to some new corporation as a cutting-edge model for the church. In fact, this book is frankly very unoriginal because all it seeks to do is look at the, at the New Testament and follow what it shows to be a model of church in order to grow the church. Pretty amazing, huh? Never thought you actually look at the Bible to figure out how to grow a church. Now, truth be told, uh, you should know because... Most of you that have gone to the members class would have heard. This is frankly our, has, what has been our basic approach uh, at church already. So it's not like we're saying for the first time, oh, maybe we should just look at the Bible. No, we've been trying to look at the Bible. And we've been emphasizing different things at different times as we have come to the conclusion this is what the pattern is set down for us in the Scriptures. And yet, as we have been thinking about these different emphases, the, the, the beauty of this book, again, is not as in its originality, but rather in bringing together all of these things that we've already been knowing we should do and trying to do and brought them together in a focused and in a coherent way into uh, a, a, um, a large vision of how uh, the church is meant to grow uh, in every single ministry in which we are doing in a connected and an organic way. Ultimately, it's an approach, again, that we have tried to emphasize, and that is an approach based on the gospel itself. I know that seems like it should be a no-brainer, but it's not. Because actually growing a church with the gospel means it's going to take time. It means it's going to take hard work. It means you're actually going to have to get to know people and love people and be involved in their life. It means you're going to have to make sacrifices. And frankly, it's much easier to put together an amazing performance for worship, to open a Starbucks in a lobby, or to tell people, don't worry too much about doctrine, than it is to work for gospel growth in order to grow a church. But that's what we want to do. That's what Pastor John and Pastor Joe and Pastor Richard believe this is what God wants to do, is to grow this church through gospel growth. What it means is we're not simply wanting to grow the church and help people get saved as a result. We want people to get saved and so have the church grow in that order. What we want to do is not anything really different than what we have been doing. What we want to do it in a more comprehensive, a more focused way so that all of our members will come to see themselves as a disciple-making disciple. In other words, uh, from the least of them to the greatest of them, as it were, and the greatest is by no means this person here, let me tell you, but from the latest to the greatest, we all are involved in this work of gospel growth, of bringing the gospel message to bear both on one another's lives and the lives of those around us so that God can do the work of bringing people to himself. And over the next few weeks, as we uh, begin now and go into January, what we want to do uh, is to lay out this kind of vision for what this is going to look like 
at Crossway. We want to say, this is what the basics of gospel growth is, and this is what it's going to look like day in and day out. We pray, by God's grace, in this body of believers. Now, you can find uh, the basics of gospel growth all throughout uh, the scriptures, but we want to especially see a clear picture of it in Colossians chapter 1. And here, what we simply want to see uh, is this. The gospel is the means by which unbelievers become believers and believers become mature believers. That's it. That's it. Pretty simple, isn't it? And yet, it is something that we forget time and time a time again. In this church and in other churches and in many churches around the world where perhaps even the gospel itself has long been lost in favor of some other fad or idea or emphasis. But what we want to be, what we want to be so clear about this morning is that if we are going to truly be the, the cross-centered community that we have put as the tagline for what we want to be as a church, that it means we are going to be focused on the gospel message and we're going to understand how it is the gospel that God has invested power in to grow people's lives. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the Word of God. Paul is writing to the Colossians, wanting to encourage them to live as God's people. Specifically, he is writing because a, a, a slippery, slippery alternative to the gospel has slowly begun creeping in. And, and we believe the same man that he talked about earlier, Epaphras, has come to him and said, you, you need to give me some advice and help me understand how to do this. And so Paul has written this letter seeking to, to, to weed out this false teaching and to encourage them to keep the main thing, the main thing. To assure them the message they have heard is the full message. It is the word of truth. It has caused growth and they have seen this and so therefore they should cling to the truth and continue in it. Paul begins by reminding them of how they came to Christ and how they have again seen this gospel growth in and through their lives. And as we look at these verses, I want us to consider three imperatives that I think emerge for us as we seek to imitate their example and pursue God's plan for gospel growth here at this church. So three things that we should be doing. First, we should follow the pattern for gospel growth. We should follow the pattern for gospel growth. 
Paul begins by telling the caution Christians that he is thankful to God for them. Specifically, he says he is thankful they have truly experienced salvation. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, what specifically is he thankful for? He is thankful for two things. First, their faith in Christ Jesus. And secondly, he is thankful for the love they have as God's people. Now, at its very essence, those are the two, the two basics of the Christian life. It's those two things that mark you out from the rest of the world and for the rest of those who are not Christians. By placing their faith in Christ, they have fundamentally declared Jesus is Lord. They have a commitment in terms of their love and their allegiance. They have said He alone is the object of our faith and worship. Furthermore, this love for Christ, he says, has led to a love for Christ's people. Now, what did Jesus himself say in John 13? Do you remember? He said, this is how the people out there are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. I mean, think about that. He didn't say by your great doctrine. He didn't say by your great programs. He didn't say by your magnificent buildings and ministries. He said, by your love for one another people will know you're truly my disciples. Well, the Apostle John puts an even finer point on it. In his first letter he to the Christians, First John, in chapter 4, he said this. He said, don't deceive yourself into thinking you're really a Christian if you don't love other Christians. He says, how in the world can you say, oh, I love God when you've not seen God, yet you refuse to love God's people whom you have seen? He says, that is evidence that you don't really love God like you think you do. You don't love God like you profess to. Loving God's people is a natural and essential outflow of faith in God's Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says he is thankful that from what he has heard of the Colossians, they therefore are truly God's people. They have a sincere faith in Christ and they have an evident love for his people. But did you notice what produced that faith and that love? Paul says he is thankful for their faith. He is thankful for their love because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now think about what he's saying there. I think we would probably reverse typically what Paul is saying. I think we would often say hope is a consequence of a life of faith and love. We look at how we are living and say, I have hope that I'm a Christian. I have hope I will be saved. I can remember even as a little boy, not quite understanding everything yet, I remember going to bed at night Closing my eyes and thinking about all the bad things I had done and making sure I confessed them before I died, before I went to sleep in case I died in my sleep. I just wanted to make sure I was going to get to heaven. But that's not the way it works. That saying, what I do gives me hope of the Christian life. And Paul says it's exactly the opposite. It's because you have an assurance of the future. It's because you have hope in Christ. This is what allows you to continually live a life of faith that produces love for God's people in the here and now. This kind of hope came through their hearing the gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Of this truth you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now as we think about even what Paul says here about the gospel we have to just stop and consider, particularly in our own day, the audacious claim that Paul is making. He says the message of the gospel is the truth. What that means is the gospel should never be preached alongside words like, well, this works for me, or this is true for me. I hope it works for you. Paul would say, boulder dash to all that. 
No way. This is the truth. It cannot, the gospel can never be set up on a shelf next to various spiritual options for us to, to partake of one. It's not a slab of steak next to chicken and fish and whatever else on the spiritual buffet line. This is the word of truth. The gospel is more than just ideas or human inventions. It's, as we say, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it's that true message that was proclaimed to the Colossians. It's the message of Christ's death for sinners and His resurrection from the dead, all for their salvation. It's their believing that message that has given them hope for their future. They heard that Christ offered Himself up on the cross to make purifications for sins. And because they believed this, they were made right with God. They believed what Paul describes in verses 12 through 14, that God had qualified them to share the inheritance of the saints in light, that He had delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. They heard the gospel and they believed it. Their future was secure in Christ. Therefore, they had final hope that they would be saved from God's wrath, and that produced in them a continual life of faith towards God and a love for God's people. Now, what's my point here? My point is this. This is what happens when the gospel is preached. This is what happens when the gospel is shared. People believe and lives are changed. No one believes the gospel and then stays the same. If if that's that's what has happened, then they've not believed the gospel. You say, well, what about so-and-so? And what about no no no? Belief equals transformation. That that's what happens. And if that has not happened, then something has short-circuited along there. Either you've believed a false message or you've really not believed it. Paul says, when the gospel is proclaimed, people will believe, and when the people believe, their lives will be changed. He says, this gospel message is the message that has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul makes an important statement here as we think about how to grow a church. He says this, real spiritual growth doesn't come through programs or events, but through sharing the gospel. It doesn't matter how much we love our Sunday morning classes. It doesn't matter how much we love coming together here to worship with one another. It doesn't matter how much we like our community groups. It doesn't matter how much we enjoy our New Year's Eve functions or anything else we do as a church. If the gospel is not proclaimed, we will not grow. Spiritual growth, real spiritual growth, will not happen. You may be able to gather a crowd. They have to do crowd control, but that doesn't mean it's real spiritual growth. Paul says the gospel is the only thing that produces spiritual life. It produces spiritual life in those who've never heard of Christ, and it matures the spiritual life that already exists in God's people and those who have professed faith in Christ. This is why Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world as well as continually in the Colossians' lives. They don't just hear the gospel, believe it, and then ignore it. He says the gospel is continually proclaimed among you. It is continually at work among you, maturing you and growing you in your faith. And so this is the pattern that we have to imitate. If we want to see this church grow, then we must pursue gospel growth. If we want to see our lives matured, if we want to see people in the city get saved and have the city itself changed, we've been hearing about on Sunday mornings, then it starts with the gospel and its proclamation. 
to everyone. That's what happened in the city of Colossae. But how did the gospel come to them? Did you notice? As we read that text, did you notice how the gospel came to them? This is important. And in fact, it's our second point, and that is this. We must partner together for gospel growth. We must partner together for gospel growth. Paul didn't bring the gospel to Colossae. He was not the missionary who came and brought the word about Christ to them. He only heard of their faith and is now writing to encourage them. So how do they hear the gospel? How did this growth get started? Well, Paul tells us. He says, the gospel is going out into all the world, growing and changing lives, producing fruit of righteousness, just as you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras brought the gospel to the Colossians. Why? Because he was from Colossae. He himself was a Colossian citizen. Paul tells us that in chapter 4. He says he is one of you. So here... Here is what we think about. How did this all work? How did, how did Epaphras hear the gospel? How did he come to Colossae? Well, he already knows Paul. He has gone to Paul for help. Therefore, the best of the Bible scholars, taking Acts and Colossians and what we know from these other books, have said, basically, this is what we think has happened. Uh, that the city of Ephesus was a great uh, city for business and for travel. Uh, there was a lot of interstate commerce, we would call it, going through that city. And it would have been, as we read about in Acts 19, when Paul was there preaching the gospel, seeing it explode in that city to the point that riots uh, 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 broke out, that it's very likely Epaphras himself, coming from the nearby city of Colossae, was actually in Ephesus, heard the gospel perhaps even was able to undergo some uh, some discipleship, likely while he's there on business, and then he travels back to the city of Colossae. Now, he's just heard this mind-blowing news. When you walk into Ephesus, and first of all, you have this, this, uh, this great temple to Diana, to Artemis, that everybody is worshiping there, but there's all these other little temples, and he's heard this message, don't go to the other temples, they're all false gods. There's only one God. And he has made himself known through Jesus Christ. And the only way to be made right with this God is not by offering sacrifices, not trying to appease their wrath, but by seeing he has already appeased his own wrath in the offering of a son who is now raised back from the dead and is exalted as Lord above all things. And Epaphras' mind just goes... Because that's completely different than anything he's ever heard in his life. His worldview is God's, 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 God's everywhere. Little, big, powerful, weak. God's everywhere. And Paul said, no, one God who became like us out of love for sinners. And Epaphras says, I want that. I want to know that God. And so he has believed. So he comes back to Colossae. And there's no one else that is a Christian. What is he going to do? He does not get down on his knees by his bed at night and say, oh God, send Paul to Colossae. He doesn't say, send another apostle to Colossae. Send somebody who will, who will preach the gospel in Colossae. What does he do? He shares the gospel. He actually goes and begins telling people, perhaps in the market, perhaps standing outside false, the, 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 uh, the, the, the temples of false gods, or whatever it is, starts with his friends and family. He begins sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let that escape you. Epaphras is not an apostle. He is not a pastor. He is not an elder. He didn't go to Bible college or seminary. He doesn't even have a few online credits. He is just the average so-called Christian. 
And yet he is the one who took it upon himself to say, the gospel must come to my city. The gospel must come to Colossae. And I'm going to take it there. How can I keep this good news to myself? How can I keep this amazing truth about the reality of the world and who this man Jesus was and is and forever will be? I must proclaim it. And men and women and children in Colossae began to believe as Epaphras shared the gospel. Time went on, these believers began gathering together, worshiping, and became a church. And the gospel continued to be proclaimed, not only among them, but from them. They didn't just say, oh, I believe, and now we have our holy huddle, we have a church, now we're all good. Let's just be, let's just be a nice little family and have meals together and not do anything else. No! they continually penetrated into their city telling people the gospel and the church began to grow and grow and grow, not just numerically, but spiritually. Maturity issued forth as the gospel was continually proclaimed by Epaphras and all these other new Christians. By example, this passage shows us what the Bible teaches elsewhere. Everyone, everyone, I'll say it again, Everyone is meant to be involved in the ministry of gospel growth. Everyone. There's no one who has claimed the name of Christ that says, that's for the pastor. That's for a missionary. That's for some young college student who's got lots of time and energy. No. The the, the Bible says it is for everyone to be involved proclaiming the word of truth. And throughout his church history, some of the best Christians have not been have not needed to have been told this. They just know it intuitively. One of the greatest one of the greatest pastors. In fact, he was, as far as we know, the first person to actually write a, a manual on preaching in the English language was the Puritan William Perkins. But he was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, he was uh, into uh, astrology and occultism. Uh, more than that, he was known for the thing that most college students are even known for today as much as back then, that is drunkenness and carousing. It was, in fact, uh, an, an, a woman who had a young son, and she was disciplining him, and he was kind of giving her lip, and she said, you better watch it, or I'll give you over to drunken Perkins over there. And it was, in fact, that statement that the Lord used to sober him up and to, to evaluate his life and the reality of how he was going, which eventually led to his being saved, him trusting in the gospel. And he immediately had a burning desire to preach the gospel, to tell other people what he himself had been hearing all his life and yet never believed. But it was illegal to go preaching unless you had a license to preach. You just can't go stand on the street corner and start preaching. People got killed for that in his day. So what did he do? He went to the one place where he knew no one would care that he went to and preached the gospel. He went to prison. He said, open the gate and put me in there with the people that have nothing else to lose. The people that are going to be hanged this day and the next day. The people who are in this prison only because they owe a little bit of money, but it doesn't make any sense they're in prison because they can't earn any money to buy their way out. So they just stick there and nobody, uh, nobody gets help from that. He said, give me to those people that nobody else wants anything to do with and I will preach the gospel to them. Why did he do that? Because he couldn't contain the good news that he had. He could not contain his passion for Christ and for his glory. After all, he was God. 
who took on flesh to die for his sins. How can you not proclaim that to people? It didn't matter whether it was a king or a prince or one of his college professors or whether it was this prison inmate. Everyone needed to hear of Christ, the Savior of sinners. And so he began to preach. And frankly, the same attitude should be in all of us. Isn't that what we saw in the video this morning about Haiti? I mean, here, here you have a guy who gets saved and, and no one tells him, now you need to go and, you know, you, you're the perfect indigenous missionary. You know, you're a Haitian, you're born Haitian, the Haitian people are going to listen to you. No, he just gets saved. He's like, I got to go tell people. And, and in fact, someone else has to come along and, and they find out about him and they say, hey man, this guy's really on fire. If you want to be successful as a missionary, you should hook up with this guy and encourage him a little bit. And he can encourage you. It's not just. It's not just in the past in church history. It's also today. This is the expectation that God has that all of us are going to be involved in gospel growth. Whether it's a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, whether it's a single mom, whether it's a grandpa, whether it's someone who's retired or someone who works 50 hours a week, our calling as God's people is to make it our goal to be speaking God's words. Might be in a coffee shop, might be a line in a grocery store, it might be in our living room, it might be at work, it might be in a class here at church, it might be to unbelievers who have never heard of their need for Christ, or it might be to believers who need to be encouraged to continue to put their faith in Christ. But as God's people, redeemed by the blood of Christ, our calling is to partner together for gospel growth by speaking God's words to one another and to the world. But that speaking does not go out bare. It needs to be combined with prayer. And that's why we come to our third, our third exhortation. And that is this. Pray expectantly for gospel growth. Pray expectantly for gospel growth. Now yesterday, or perhaps Friday... I imagine most of you sat around with family or friends for some kind of Christmas celebration, right? There was probably a meal and there was probably gift giving. Now, for some of you, it was truly Christmas in the sense that you got the perfect gift. I mean, it was that one thing you just thought, I can't, that's, yes, that's like, that's it. That, that's what I would have wanted. I may not even, I may not even known it, but that's, that's the perfect gift. And I know the first thing you did was find out where they bought it and he tried to call the store manager and thank them for stocking it, right? Isn't that what you did? No, of course you didn't do that, did you? You looked at the person who gave it to you and you said, thank you. Perhaps you hugged them. Perhaps you, you, you planted a big one on them. Well, whatever you did to say thank you, but you thanked the person who gave you the gift, right? Likewise, Paul says, I am thankful for you, Colossians, but he doesn't say, thank you for living the way Christians should. That's not what he does. He says, I thank God that you're living the way Christians should. What Paul is acknowledging is simply this, that the the Colossians are being obedient, that they are living faithfully. That has come as a result of a work of God in their life. It has come as a result of His grace. He is the one that has produced it. Therefore, he thanks God for their lives. And likewise, as we think about this task of gospel growth, what we need to understand is that God is the one who gives spiritual life. Therefore, even as we are speaking about the gospel, we also must be prayerfully asking God, make this thing work. Produce the growth that you've promised is going to happen. Bring about spiritual change in these people. Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith. Notice Paul doesn't say, oh, they're saved. I'm done praying for them. He says, we continually pray for you. 
We pray for you all the time. When we do, we thank God for your faith. But more than that, more than that, they don't just say thanks that they're saved. Paul says, I pray that you continue on and grow in your faith. I pray that you mature as God's people. He says in verse 9, From the day that we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, many of us think about God's will as specific directions for our life. We think about, you know, should I take this job? You know, is, you know, I've got, I've got an option here on two used cars. You know, God, tell me which one's the lemon? Which one's going to break down in a week? So I don't want to buy that one. I want to buy the good one. It's going to last for a long time. Or who am I going to marry? Or, you know, what job do I take? Or, or whatever else. And it's not necessarily wrong to seek God's will in those things, but you understand that the vast majority of the time, that's not how the Bible speaks about God's will. It speaks about God's will as this all-encompassing thing that we are seeking to achieve with our lives. Faithfulness to what He has already told us to do in His Word in every sphere of our life, whether it's our marriage or our parenting or our job or our internet time or our reading or whatever else it is, all of it is meant to be lived for the glory of God. And that is what Paul is getting at here uh, in this text. He tells us elsewhere uh, in Romans chapter 12 that it is through the repeated exposure of God's word that our minds are so transformed that we come to better understand his perfect will. That is, we come to obey him and live with him as our king. And it's that same kind of continual understanding, that continual transformation that he's talking about. He says, I pray for you Colossians to have all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He is praying that they understand more and more how to live the way God wants them to live in every part of their life. And notice the goal of that understanding. The goal of this knowledge is so that they would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, again, keep keep the train of thought in your mind. He's saying, God, I want you to help the Colossians understand who they are in you. Understand what you want for their lives. They would have all spiritual wisdom understand that they would know your will so that they can live in such a way that their lives are worthy of you, worthy of the salvation that you have given them in Christ. Paul tells us what that kind of worthy life looks like. He says it means bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Essentially, what Paul is saying is simply this. A life that pleases God is one that doesn't stand still. A life worthy of the Lord, a life that a Christian is supposed to leave never says, it's good enough. I'm a spiritual Adonis. I've arrived. I have no more growth to do. I'm okay. No. Paul says that's not what the Christian life is about. The, 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 the Christian life is perhaps even in life which has knocked you flat on your face. You are digging your fingernails and crawling further and further for greater maturity. Sometimes you're running. You, you, you are just like running a marathon. God is so at work in your life and, and you are so focused on Him that growth is, is coming in leaps and bounds. Whatever way it is, the Christian says, I will not stop, I will not give in because I am not yet perfect. I have not been conformed to the, to the image of my Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is still work that is left to be done and I will pursue it. That's what Paul prays for. That's what Paul prays for in their life. Now, does your life look that way all the time? Let, let, let me just set the example and say, even as the pastor, ain't no way, Jose. Okay? 
that there are days and there are weeks and, and sadly there, there are months. That is not my life. I am just fighting to hang on. I mean, I mean, I am literally just, just holding on and saying, let me just, let me just make it through this day. And you know why that's the case? I would say almost every time it's because I've taken my eyes off Jesus. I'm not actually trusting Him for anything. I'm trusting myself to get through those situations. I'm trusting myself to achieve holiness and maturity. And Paul says it doesn't work that way. Paul says it doesn't work that way. He says, I am praying that they grow and they mature, that they continually bear fruit, that they live a life worthy of the Lord, increasing in every good work. And the way that comes, verse 11, is by the strengthening that comes from God. He says, I pray that you'll be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. It is the power of God that gives us strength to grow and mature living lives worthy of Him. It is His glorious might that that makes gospel proclamation effective in the lives of His people. It is His power that enables us to endure with perseverance and to endure not bitterly, hating every minute of it, but to endure with joy. I mean, think about that. That's huge. Because there are some people who endure and it's not with joy. You know, they say, call me Mara because my heart is filled with bitterness. Okay, you know, from, from the book of Ruth, if you don't know what that what that's about, go, go look it up. It's a good story. But they're just consumed with bitterness or, or or they're just always, you know, they're just always complaining. It's always, well, we got this thing. I mean, you just want to look at them and say, you know, is anything good happened to you in like 10 years? Because I, I have never heard anything like that come out of your mouth. I mean, I was telling somebody a couple of weeks ago, you know, you've got all of these Christians on Facebook which is a good thing. But you've got some of them, and I want to say, could you just like not post anything for like a month? Because every time you do, it's a whine, it's a gripe, it's a complain, it's a oh, woe is me. They're Eeyores. It's like, give me some tiggers once in a while, you know? I get brought down all the time. And they try and sound spiritual and throw this little line, like, well, I'm still trusting the God in it. What does Paul say? Paul says, have a miserable life, but have it with joy. That's the work that God does in you. I mean... You know, a few weeks ago, I read this story about this guy, and I'd heard read it before, but I just read it again, and it just it just boggled my mind because I thought it can only be the work of God. He, here's a guy who he goes out as a short-term missionary, and he sees some success, and, they, and, and the the mission agency says, "Come back, and we want to we want you to study for your PhD, so you can not only do field work, you can also train and raise up the pastors in that area." So he comes back, and he gets cancer. He gets has bad cancer. And he survives the cancer, finishes the degree, goes back on the field, and his wife has cancer. And she doesn't make it. She dies. And he comes back, and it's just weeks after the funeral, and he's preparing with his little daughter to go back to the mission field. And someone's talking with him, and they said, there's just not a residue of bitterness. Is he sad that his wife died? Absolutely. But they said, "What? Well, how can you even think about going back? How can you even? How can you even still trust God?" And he said, "It could have been a lot worse. It could have took both of our lives, and left our daughter as an orphan to be raised by somebody else. But in God's kindness, in His grace, He allowed one of us to survive this cancer, so we can continue the work we had in South America, and continue to raise our daughter." Now, see the difference. That that perspective 
comes from not trying to live life on your own, from not trying to live life in your strength and in your power and whatever you can muster. That perspective comes from saying, God, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, in my sleep, I need you. I cannot endure. I cannot persevere. You must be my strength. And when we have that confidence, that assurance, that is the kind of life that produces joy with thanksgiving to God. And Paul says, this is the kind of work the gospel does in his people. This is why we must continually proclaim, if we are to at all live a life worthy of Christ, if we are to at all live in a way that is pleasing to him, to continue to mature and grow, then we must be prayerfully, prayerfully speaking God's word to one another, encouraging one another, and building one another up. This is the the vision the elders want to begin to set before you this morning for what life will continue and in ever-increasingly ways look like here at Crossway in the coming months and years. It's a vision of church that grows from the prayerful proclamation of the gospel. It is proclaiming the gospel to those who do not yet believe, may not even have heard of the name of Christ, and seeing God bring them to salvation. And it's proclaiming the gospel to those of us who already believe that we can be built up and grown and matured in our faith. It is a vision that says we we, we don't want to do dog and pony shows. We don't want to roll out program after program after program every year. We simply want the gospel to do its work, but we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. In coming weeks, we're going to talk more about this. But at the end of the day, what it, what it calls for is for every member to say, we want to partner together for gospel growth. It may look big. It may look small. It's going to look different because I'm different from everybody else. But we are going to be in this together. As a faith family, That we will be marked by the gospel in our lives. Not just in how we live, but in what we say to one another and to the world. Towards that end, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your message of the gospel. God, we are thankful for your beloved Son in whom there is forgiveness of sins. God, we pray that we would never take those things for granted and that, Father, we would never try to build our life on anything else than than that foundational truth. But, God, more than just build our life on it, may we continually, God, be reminded of that foundation. May you continually turn our eyes away from our problems, away from other things that would tempt us into idolatry. God, turn our eyes back to Christ and remind us of His glory, His excellence and beauty, God, that not only satisfies our soul, but secures salvation for our soul before You. Father, we pray that in the coming weeks You would continue to to be with the preaching of Your Word, God, that we might get our minds and our hearts around this idea of gospel growth. But more than just theory, God, that by your grace, that it would be the very fabric of the life of this church. To all that we would see, whether for salvation or for encouragement, for evangelism or equipping, God, we would be speaking the gospel prayerfully to one another. God, we know this is your will for our life, and therefore we ask you to come and to do it in our midst. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his name we pray. Amen.